Please take your Bible and turn with me this morning to 1 Samuel 8. We're finishing the 8th chapter of 1 Samuel this morning, three sermons, all regarding the rejection by Israel of God as their king. The title of this sermon, The Lie of Greener Grass. The Lie of Greener Grass. As we've walked through the events of 1 Samuel 8, we have mentioned two aspects of Israel's rejection of God. Last week we spoke of the first aspect of that rejection. This week we'll speak of the second. The first aspect was that their desire for a king was outside of God's will and specifically outside of God's timing. We spent last week considering this demand that they made, uh, give us a king, through the doctrinal teaching of God's permissive will, that God can, and indeed God does, allow men to go their own way even when it directly opposes his revealed perfect will. It is not in opposition to his sovereign will, remember we stated, but it is in opposition to his directive or his perfect will. It's called his permissive Will And we did take care to highlight that these actions by God do not pose a threat to his sovereignty as we believe that the free will of man has been established by God's sovereign decree. And so as God is all-knowing, this concept that we call in theology omniscient, that God has seen all things, he knows all things, he has foreseen every action, he has foreseen every contingency, and therefore no free decision of man, though man does have a free will, has any possibility of thwarting the overall sovereign decree, the example from last week being the ocean liner of God's sovereign will, from, from ending up at its chosen destination. And so in asking for a king, Israel revealed that they did not want God ruling over them. And as God allowed them to step into this decision, God allowed them to step into his permissive will. Now this week we're going to consider a second aspect of Israel's rejection of God. Not only did they want a king in order to cast off the yoke of God's direct authority over them in order to cast off that direct God-to-nation authority. But we also see that they wanted a king so that they could be like the other nations that were around them. Israel looked at the Philistines. Israel looked at the Ammonites. Israel looked at the Moabites. And they were envious of these nations. They were convinced that by having a king, they would be able to become more like these nations that they envied so much. Now, last week, we began our study with the permissive will of God by establishing the foundational doctrine of the free will of man. If man does not have a free will, then God simply cannot have a permissive will because God's permissive will demands that he is allowing man to exercise free will. And if God does not have a permissive will, and therefore man does not have a free will, then we come to things like Balaam in Numbers 22, or we come to the example in 1 Samuel 8, and these become far more confusing and possibly even contradictory. So we established first that the Bible allows for the reality of man's free will, and then when we understand that man has a free will, we are free to consider 
God's interaction with man's free will through the doctrine of God's permissive will. We must again lay a foundation today. If we are going to understand the full weight of Israel's rejection of God here in 1 Samuel 8, this doctrinal foundation will again help us as Christ's church to relate properly to the example found in 1 Samuel 8 of the rejection that Israel exemplifies and this doctrinal foundation that we must lay is the foundational doctrine of election. The doctrine of election. Now, it is ironic that last week we explicitly clarified the doctrine of free will. This week we are explicitly clarifying the doctrine of election. And it is interesting because both of these particular doctrines are greatly mischaracterized by one particular aspect of theology, one particular um, uh, branch of Christianity known as Reformed theology and their view of salvation, which we typically call Calvinism. I mentioned that in brief last week. It is just ironic that, that both of these come up and both of them, we believe, are, are grossly misrepresented by this theological system known as Reformed theology. For generations, this system has taught that the doctrine of election is intricately tied to salvation. So that when the Bible speaks of an elect person or the Bible speaks of an elect group, it is speaking of a person or a group who has been chosen unto salvation by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now, the end of this interpretation is that when the Bible calls Christians in this church age elect, the Bible is telling us that God has chosen specific people to be saved from the very beginning of the world. And that only those who are elect will ever be saved or will ever have the chance to be saved. Now, naturally, if only those that are elect can be saved, have the chance to be saved or will be saved, then that also means that there are those who are not elect, which means they have naturally been chosen not to be saved. And so they have rather been chosen to be damned. And that regardless of any circumstances, their damnation in hell has been affixed from before their very birth. And as I read my Bible, the idea that men are born irrevocably damned to hell is just not valid. It's not there. It in no way reflects the biblical teaching. It in no way reflects the character of our God. It is invalid. Say, so, well, pastor, you said you're, you're going to clarify the doctrine of election this morning. I thought that's what the doctrine of election is. What is the doctrine of election then? Well, we could spend a whole sermon on it. And in fact, I did. Uh, not too long ago, November 30th of 2014, in our evening service, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4, I preached a sermon on election. If you're interested in a more biblically saturated or more thorough um, covering of the doctrine of election, I encourage you to get online, LegacyBaptistChurch.net. Go to the sermon, evening sermon, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. It's simply titled, Election. And you can listen to that sermon at your leisure. But let me give you a brief overview of a biblically consistent view of the doctrine of election. The Bible calls the church elect several times in Scripture, but the church is not the only person or group that is, in fact, 
called elect. In fact, we find in Isaiah 42, verse 1, that Isaiah, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, calls Messiah his elect. Behold, he says in Isaiah 42, 1, my servant whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. Now, we can assume, based upon everything that we know of Christ, it is obvious, based upon everything that we know of Jesus Christ, that he never needed to be saved. And so we understand implicitly that the idea of Jesus, the Messiah, being God's elect, cannot be tied into salvation here. What is his election then? Well, the verse tells us that he was chosen by God, God's elect, that he shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. His election was not about the position that he had before God. It was about a purpose that God had chosen him unto. And this is very important. Election not having to do with a position. Election having to do with a purpose. Okay? Election not having to do with a position. Election having to do with a purpose. Now we continue in 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 21 and not only do we see Jesus, the Messiah called elect, but in 1 Timothy 5 21 we see that the angels were called elect. Paul writing to Timothy, he says, I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that thou observe these things without preferring one before another doing nothing by partiality. Now this passage does not tell us what they are elect unto and the argument could be made if we were just looking at angels and men that you could say well yeah these were the angels that that were were chosen unto not being the 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 uh, demonic angels are not being fallen angels but again that's turning an understanding on its head we'll get there in just a moment the bible doesn't say what the angels are elect unto but we know it wasn't unto salvation because when jesus christ died on the cross he was called the last adam he came to undo what man had done he came to undo man's problem he came for man that's why he became a man his salvation his redemption had nothing to do with the angels. And so again, this election cannot intrinsically be tied to the salvation that we, that we, we understand in the Bible. It can't be because the angels could not be elect unto the salvation. This salvation is for mankind, humanity, those of Adam's race. Now this next one is very, very important. The most important in our study of election if we're going to get it right In Romans chapters 9 through 11, Paul teaches on the relationship between the church, a spiritual nation made up of anyone and everyone who has accepted Jesus Christ by grace through faith in the finished work, who has believed on the name of Jesus to be saved, the relationship between the church and and that, that spiritual nation and national Israel, a physical nation made up of those who are born into an ethnic heritage and receive circumcision into the Mosaic Covenant on the eighth day according to the Mosaic Law. In Romans chapter 9, verses 10 through 12, we read this, And not only this, but when Rebekah had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. Here we see that God had chosen the younger son named Jacob 
that that would be um, the son of Isaac and Rebekah to be the one who would be blessed, who would become a great nation, that the younger son would be the one that would, would form the nation of Israel as opposed to the elder son. The election presented here is not that Jacob would be a righteous man and Esau would be an unrighteous man. Nowhere in the text does it say that Jacob was elect to be righteous and Esau was elect to be unrighteous. Now we do find, as we go throughout the scripture, the scriptures call Esau a profane man. And so we see that Esau was a man that had despised the blessings that he had been born into. But nowhere in the text does it state that this had to do with salvation. Rather, it states that he was chosen not unto a position, but unto a purpose, that he would be the one through whom this nation would continue. And as we get into chapter 11 of Romans 9, Paul speaks in verse 5 about the election of grace. And by this, he references the election that the church has entered into by grace through faith. Keep, keep up with me here because the, the sum is... Or the, the whole is more than the sum of its parts. It, it, it'll, it'll come together here. He speaks in Romans chapter 11, verse 5, about the election of grace. And he says this, Even so then, at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. This is the election that you and I are part of, the election of grace. But is it an election synonymous with salvation? Well, it wasn't with reference to Messiah. It isn't with reference to the angels. It wasn't with reference to Jacob and Esau. So why are we so hasty to equate salvation and election when it comes to grace? Why are we so hasty to say that election is salvation when it comes to the church? Could it be that the election of the church, as with every other example of election in the Bible, is not about position but is about purpose? Could it be that the election of the church is not about who will be saved, but about what that saved person is meant to do with their lives? Could it be that just like Israel was elect unto a purpose that we'll talk about here in just a little bit, that they would be a particular, a peculiar people rightly related to God so that the rest of the world would know how to be rightly related to God? That in the same way, the church didn't inherit salvation from the Jews as much as it inherited the purpose of the Jews. Could it be that the election of grace is not speaking of who will be saved, but rather what the, the purpose will be of those who are saved by grace through faith in the finished work of Christ? Could it be that the election of grace is about the purpose given to us who are under grace, regardless of nationality or creed, rather than the divine choosing of who will get to be under grace? Does this not make much more sense biblically than trying to shoehorn the idea of salvation into the doctrine of election? Does it not make sense then that there is a remnant of national Israel, a remnant of the physical nation that is still privileged to be a part of the election that the rest of the nation had lost, and that being the privilege of being rightly related to God so that they could show the rest of the world how to be rightly related to God? That when Israel was set aside of this purpose of showing forth God's praise, and the church was given this purpose of showing forth God's praise, 
that there were those in Israel who had accepted by grace through faith the finished work of Jesus Christ, and so they naturally became a part of that election so that there is a remnant of Israel in the election of grace. I contend that this is far more consistent with what the Bible teaches about election, not just on behalf of how the church interacts and understanding how the word election is used in the Bible, but also when we consider the disposition of God toward national Israel today. In Romans chapter 11, verses 1 through 7, the Bible says this. We're still in Romans 11 now. I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people which he foreknew. Will ye not what the scripture saith unto uh, of Elias, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they, <coughs> excuse me, they have killed thy prophets and dig down thy altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself seven thousand men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so then at this present time also there is a remnant and this is the verse that we read already, verse 5, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more of grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. And the text continues giving some examples. But can you see how the concept of election can, can be directed as much toward purpose as it is toward position. How that fits very well with Paul's teaching here. That God promised Israel that they would be a peculiar people. That they would have the blessings that He had promised to them, but they refused to obey. So God could not fulfill His purpose in them. So He had to set them aside for a time and allow thus the church to fulfill this purpose until such a time as He draws the nation back to himself until such a time that he makes the physical nation of Israel to become a part of his election once again. Paul says in Romans chapter 11, verse 11, so we're skipping a few verses to verse 11, I say then, he says, have they, this is the physical nation of Israel, has national Israel stumbled that they should fall? His answer is, God forbid. But rather through their fall, Salvation has come to the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. You say, Pastor, salvation is used there. Yes, salvation is used there. That through their fall from grace, the election was opened up that through their fall from the purpose of God, that purpose was transitioned to anybody and everybody who would place their full faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And this is where we see Jesus Christ come in. National Israel has stumbled and been set aside from the election of the purpose of God, but not permanently. Wait a minute. They've been set aside from the purpose of the election of God, but not permanently. How could that have anything to do then with salvation? The people of Israel were never saved by being citizens. Did you know that? The people of Israel were never saved by being citizens of the nation. They were saved the same way we are by placing their full faith and trust in the revealed Word of God. But they were, as a nation, regardless of whether or not they had chosen to put their full faith and trust in Christ, been chosen to be representatives of God to the world around them. 
The nation over their history proved that it didn't work. That unless there was a heart change, unless there was a heart change, people would never come together to serve God even when it is in their best interest to do so. So God changed his method, choosing rather to allow only those who had accepted his salvation and been given a new nature in Christ to be his representatives. And so the church was born on the day the Holy Spirit indwelled the believers at Pentecost. And from that day forward, the elect became not a physical nation, but a spiritual nation of those who had changed from the inside out. And so they had the capacity through God's power and the desire through God's redemption, spiritual redemption, to represent God properly. But that doesn't mean that it invalidated all of the promises given by God to the nation of Israel. Rather, it only put them aside for a time. And this is explained in Romans 11, culminating in verses 25 through 28. Let me read them for you. Paul says, I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits. That blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. And here it is. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as touching the election, they are beloved for their father's sake. This seals the deal, folks. You want proof that salvation and election must be speaking of two entirely different things? Verse 28 says that the nation of Israel is an enemy of the gospel, but beloved according to the election. If election is salvation, how can they be an enemy of the gospel, but beloved by God according to the election? That even though they hate the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is still a purpose for them according to the election. That national Israel still has a purpose even though they've rejected the gospel. And there's coming a day when God will chasten them to the extent that they will indeed accept the gospel. And then the entire nation, having accepted their Messiah as God always intended for them to do, will then enter back into the election by entering into salvation. And they will finally fulfill the purpose that God has always intended for them. But until that day, the church fulfills that purpose. And the day that we accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior, the day you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you became a part of God's purpose. A part of God's purpose to show the world how to be rightly related to God so that they could know how to be rightly related to God. Now, with this understanding of election in mind, let's jump into our text this morning. Verse 19, we, we, we covered it last week. We'll jump back into verse 19 for context. And the scriptures say this, Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, Nay, but we will have a king over us. Samuel had just finished warning the nation of the downsides, if you recall, of asking for a king. He just told them of all the negatives that the nation um, would, be, by asking for a king, they would lose a tenth of their children. They'd lose a tenth of their crops, they lose a tenth of their money to the taxes of the king, that their children would be taken to, to serve the king's needs and the government's needs. 
um, that they would lose their land, that there would need to be provision for a standing army. God warned them of all of these things and the, the answer of the nation of Israel in, in verse 19 is that's okay. That's okay, just give us a king. And so we pick up in verse 20. And I'll read verses 19 and 20 together for context. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, Nay, but we will have a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Yes, we know that there's going to be some downside, Samuel. But here's the problem. We want a king. We don't want God to be our authority. We want a king to be our authority. We don't want God to judge us. We want a king to judge us. We don't want God to fight our battles. We want a king to fight our battles. And in light of what we've learned about God's election, this request is more than just selfish. This request is self-destructing. We see, first of all, they said, we would like a king that we may be like all the nations. The problem with this is that God had given Israel the privilege of his election to a purpose. That purpose was that they would be different from the nations that were around them. This was the whole purpose of God choosing Israel. This was the whole purpose of him setting aside a nation. It was not implicitly so that there would be a nation of all saved people. That's the church. But this is a nation of people that were rightly related to God so that they could show the world how to be rightly related to God. Israel's election was that they would become that nation that is different, a different way of living. The blessings of being rightly related to God would be manifest through them. We talked two weeks ago about the time in Exodus 20 when God audibly spoke to Israel and Israel willingly entered into the Mosaic Covenant with God, declaring Him to be their king and accepting the conditions of being called the chosen people of God. In that day, they were accepting the conditions of the election, of, of what it would mean that they would be God's chosen people. And just before God gave them these conditions in, in Exodus 20 and they accepted them, he said this in Exodus 19, verses 4 through 6, "...ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bear you on eagles' wings." and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. That highlighted phrase there, then shall ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people for all the earth is mine. The whole point of Israel's position with God was that they would be different. But this difference was not a disadvantage. It was a privilege. It was a blessing, not a curse. And God said as much in Deuteronomy chapter 14 as He's talking to the people. He says in verse 2, For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God, and the Lord hath chosen thee to be a peculiar people unto Himself above 
all the nations that are upon the earth. Israel was the elect of God unto the purpose of being different. And if we take Deuteronomy 14.2 at its word, not just different, but better than the nations that are around them. They were to live a happier, more fulfilled, and more comfortable life. God chose Israel to make a special nation that was a privilege to them. God did this as a blessing to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob because he had set his love upon them. And God electing them for this special purpose and by extension protecting them and providing for them was intended to make them the most blessed and prosperous nation upon the face of the earth. This was what God intended for them. He said as much in Deuteronomy 26, verses 18 and 19. He said, The Lord hath avouched thee this day to be his peculiar people, as he hath promised thee, and that thou shouldst keep all his commandments, and to make thee high above all nations, which he hath made in praise, and in name, and in honor. God intended them to have in name, and in praise, and in honor, greater standing than the nations that were around them. Here's the problem. If you read Joshua, and you read Judges, and you read Ruth, and you step into 1 Samuel, you don't see much of that, do you? You don't see much honor and praise in the nation of Israel. As a matter of fact, you see the Philistines just before battle, when they hear the call of the Jews, because the Ark of the Covenant has just entered camp, say, stand up, quit you like men. Don't let these Jews reign over you. Don't let these Israelites reign over you. Don't let these animals reign over you, these dogs. We've ruled over them for so long. It's not a nation that was regarded very highly by their enemies. What happened? Through some 500 years of history, There weren't many moments of glory and honor. Well, we know why. We talked about it two weeks ago. We considered it this morning. They never experienced everything that God had for them as a nation because they never actually aligned themselves with God. God had chosen them. They were God's elect. And He had intended to make them a glowing example of the blessings of serving God, but they never obeyed. And because they never obeyed, they never experienced God's full blessing. Now, place yourself in the shoes of of Israel, of an Israelite in 1 Samuel 8 for just a moment. You are in this circumstance in 1 Samuel 8. You're looking back upon the history of your people, upon your parents, upon your grandparents, upon your great-grandparents. You know the promises of God well enough to know that you ought to be living in a nation where all the enemies around you are subdued, where there are no plagues, where you're healthy, where you're wealthy, where you're wise, if we can put it that way. But when you look around you, you find captivity, you find poverty, you find famine, your enemies are glorying over you. You see the Philistines over to your west, and the Philistines are a strong and happy nation. You look kind of northeast, and you see the Ammonites, and the Ammonites are a strong and happy nation. You look southeast, and you see the Moabites, and the Moabites are a strong and happy nation. And you say, well, all of these people are strong and healthy. Their gods must be blessing them. We've got something wrong with our gods. I want to be like them. I want, 
I, I want to be like them. Well, well, what do they have that we don't? Well, yeah, they've got different gods, but we've tried that before, right? We've tried worshiping Baal, and that's not working real well for us. Maybe it's their king. Maybe it's because they have someone who can really listen to the will of the people. Maybe it's because they have someone who can go out before them and, and be the morale booster and, and, and get everybody charged up and, and, and go out and fight our battles and, and he can manage the finances and he can make sure that we have an army and he can just get all this stuff together for us. Maybe that's the problem. And so you look to the other nations and you say, I want to be like them. I want what they have. And you become convinced that what they have is because of the gods that they worship and because of their, their form of government and because they have a king, because they don't have to follow the rules that you do. And so you begin to worship their gods and you begin to demand their rules. And do you see how this is a self-destructing problem with Israel? See, because the whole point of Israel was that they were different. The whole point of God choosing Israel, of God's election of Israel, was that they were going to be a peculiar people. And a part of that peculiarity was not just that He would bless them when they did right, but what? That He would curse them when they did wrong. And so for them to seek to go after the gods of others trying to solve the problems of the curse is only bringing them deeper into the curse. For them to go to the world to solve the problems is for them to, to, to sink deeper into the mire of consequences. They aren't doing it God's way and they're being cursed. And these curses were intended to help them realize that they were doing something wrong and return to God. That was the intent. Uh-oh, I've got a plague. Uh-oh, my enemy just defeated me in battle. God said this wouldn't happen. There must be something wrong between me and God. But instead, they said, uh-oh, my enemies have defeated me in battle. Uh-oh, there's a plague. Where's Baal? We've got we to talk to Baal. Where's the king? We need a king. We've got, we've got to get someone over us who can organize us into an army, who can build walled cities, who can get things going so that we don't do this again. Self-destructing. Do these circumstances sound familiar? Has the Holy Spirit brought things close to home at all while I've spoken on these things? See, because as believers, sometimes we do this too, don't we? We'll get there in just a moment. Continuing in Deuteronomy 4, verse 8, the Scriptures tell us, And what nation is there so great that hath statutes and judgments, so righteous as all this law, as God says, which I set before you this day? Deuteronomy 4, 8, the Scriptures tell us that God had given Israel righteous judgments. That regardless of who taught those judgments to the people, whether it was the king or the scribes or the priests, they were the judgments of God. These judgments were righteous and these judgments were, were unchanging. And then notice what Israel requests in verse 20. Give us a king that he may judge us. They were no longer interested in the righteous judgments of God. They wanted a king to judge them. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 4, God promised, The Lord your God is He that goeth with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. God promised that He would go before them, that He would fight their battles, that obedient Israel would never need to worry about their enemies. They wouldn't even have to build walls because no one could stand before the power of the Lord their God. And then what do they say here in verse 20? We want a king that He may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. We don't want God fighting our battles anymore. We want a king 
to fight our battles. See, God has expectations, requirements. He's tough. He's tough on us. We have to do things His way if we want things to work out. We don't want to do things His way. So tell you what, God, give us a king so He can judge us, so that He can fight our battles. And you know what they were thinking? I'm bringing myself out from under the yoke of God. The problem is it doesn't work that way. They were God's elect. It was ratified by blood. There was no way out of this one. They were going to face the consequences if they tried to unyoke themselves from God's authority. The permissive will of God let them wander into it. But there would be consequences. In the midst of the greatest promises that God had given to Israel, the grass was still greener on the other side of the fence. In the midst of all of the promises that God had laid out, all of the wonderful things that God had in store for Israel, they looked at these pagan nations and they said, wow, it's great over there. And isn't that just so human? Isn't the grass always greener on the other side of the fence? Today's Sunday. You wish it were Wednesday. Wednesday comes. If only it's Friday. Friday comes. Oh, have to wait till Saturday. Saturday comes. Oh, it's almost Monday. Grass is always greener. Regardless of what we have, there's always something we don't. Regardless of how good our situation is, there's always someone that's better. Every provision was available to Israel for a life of peace and contentment, but they were so busy fretting about what they didn't have that they had no time for the blessings of God. And lest we think that this is something that died with Israel, let's turn our thoughts toward us for the last few moments of our sermon today. As a Christian, are you one of those that kind of has become envious of the world? Wanted to be like other nations? Read the promises of God and said, yeah, I read those and, and, and if I follow those, then, then the Bible says that spirit, there will be blessings, spiritual blessings, but... Look how much fun they're having. Israel was an elect nation based upon physical birth. Every child who was born into Israel and circumcised on the eighth day became a member of the covenant nation. If the parents didn't get their son circumcised, he would be cast out of the nation, cast out of the election. If you were not born into Israel, certain nations could proselytize themselves into Israel. Other nations were completely set aside, not allowed to enter into the election of God, into any generation. We mentioned already this covenant had nothing to do with salvation and everything to do with purpose, that the nation would live rightly related to God, obey His physical laws, and by obeying His physical laws, they would receive physical blessings. Physical birth into the covenant obedience of physical laws for physical blessings. This was God's deal with Israel. The sacrificial system had nothing to do with salvation. The sacrificial system had everything to do with physical atonement for sin so that God could physically bless them. That whether or not the man uh, believed on the promises of God or not, if he aligned himself with the promises of God, if he did his sacrifices, then he would be able to take part in Israel's election. Even unbelievers in Israel, those who knew, never truly believed God's promises, could still be temporarily right with God for the purpose of God's election of Israel 
by doing these physical sacrifices. Within the scope of history, God used this interaction with the nation of Israel to prove that it wasn't enough for man to simply comply with physical laws. That unless there is a heart change, no man will keep the law, even when faced with the blessings of obedience. That even if God says, these blessings are here for you, men won't do it if their hearts are still bent toward rebellion. And so throughout the Old Testament, we find God's promises that there was coming a day when God would give Israel a new heart, where he would break up their fallow ground, where he would take away their heart of stone, and he says he would give them a heart of flesh. Or he also described it as circumcising the foreskin of their heart. There was coming a day where God's covenant would no longer be a physical covenant. It would become a spiritual covenant where it would no longer be a physical nation set aside to God, but it would be hearts of people set aside to God. This was the promise that God had made. He made it in Jeremiah chapter 31. He made it in Ezekiel as well. And this new covenant came over the, a three-day span when Jesus Christ died on the cross and when he rose again the third day. At this moment, all who would accept Jesus Christ by grace through faith in his finished work would become a part of God's election unto the purpose of representing God to the world. And one of the biggest distinctions between the election of national Israel and the election of the church is that the election of national Israel was physical, both in nature and in blessing. The election of the church is spiritual, both in nature and in blessing. Israel's election, I mentioned this already, was entered into through physical birth, physical circumcision. Israel obeyed physical laws, received physical blessings. If they disobeyed the physical laws, they would receive physical cursings. And the world would see the power of God. But that's not how the election of the church is, is it? There are no physical requirements to enter into the election of grace. No physical rite of passage like circumcision. No physical lineage like a bloodline. There's only a spiritual requirement. Belief. That anyone who would enter into the covenant, who would recognize that the, the word of God is true, that they are sinners, that Jesus Christ died on the cross, that he rose again the third day, that he is God, that he's sitting on the right hand of the Father, that he's coming again and will humble themselves before the truth of God's word and accept it for himself, will be given a new heart, a spiritual rebirth. Jesus Christ said in John 3, you will be born again. Born into what? Born into a new election. Born into a new nation. Not a nation of bloodlines, not a nation of physical kings, but a nation with a king of kings, a spiritual nation being born in. Just as Israelites were born into their election, not born into salvation, but born into their election. When one accepts salvation, they are rebirthed, born into spiritual election. And since our election is spiritual and not physical, it stands to reckon that our blessings would be spiritual as well, as opposed to physical. This means that those who are a part of the election of grace should not expect, by nature, complete physical blessings. Unlike Israel, God has not promised the church health and wealth. 
There are many who are obeying the Lord and doing what is right all around this nation who are facing great persecution, tribulation, dying for their faith, suffering for the cause. We learned about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 just last week that the suffering of the righteous in this world is a part of God's plan and it's a means by which believers fulfill God's purpose for us. So what are the blessings of our election then? Say, Pastor, we've talked about all of these things. Israel had these blessings and they looked across the fence and they said the grass is greener while they're looking straight at all these blessings. The grass is greener over there. What are the blessings that we can have? But we can look over the fence and say, you know, the grass is greener on the other side of that fence. Well, they're presented in several passages of Scripture. In Titus chapter 2, verse 14, The Scriptures tell us who gave Himself for us, speaking of Christ, that He might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto Himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works, that God has called us to be a people with the privilege of being zealous of good works for Him. Being a people that have the privilege, as Israel did, of reflecting God to the world. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9-12 through 12 says, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people. Why? That ye should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy and I lost the last little bit. Oh, no, it's on the next slide. Which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Peter says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Do you see how we, have fulfill, how we are now fulfilling the purpose that God had originally given to Israel? that we are now fulfilling the election that God had elected Israel unto? Israel said, God is great. Look at the physical blessings that we have. And now we say, God is great. Look at my spiritual redemption. I am free from the power of sin. Isn't God great? I live above the selfishness and hatred of this world. Isn't God great? I don't stumble through life looking for purpose. Isn't God great? I'm not mired in the endless misery of bitterness and resentment isn't God great. And the world should look at us and say there's something different and there's something that they have that we don't and we need it and they should want it. We're, we are to be a nation that through the blessing of redemption shows forth the praises of Him who has called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. And that's why Peter says abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. You know what's on the other side of that fence? You're holding the blessings and you look on the other side of that fence and what you're seeing are lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And Jesus says, I've got something so much better for you if you will take it. And we're busy looking over the fence saying, what are they getting themselves into? Boy, that kind of looks like fun. Jesus says, I've got something better for you right here. It's better. The election of God is always better. And we're doing what Israel did. Trying to peek over that fence. Those who have been redeemed by the power of sin, our privilege is to live a superior existence, spiritual existence in the eyes of the world. And by doing so, they will see the difference. And here is this superior existence, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit 
is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. This is the inheritance of those who are a part of the election of grace. An inheritance of spiritual success in a world that's mired by spiritual failure. God guides us. He directs us. He provides for us. All these blessings flow from the King of Kings. He's promised that if we seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, that the provision will be added unto us. Those things are certainly there, but this is the inheritance of God's elect in this age. But we can do the same thing Israel did. We can live our lives by the same jealous, misguided perspective that Israel did. We can wander into sin and we wander into sin and we start to fail to see the spiritual blessings. We get bitter. We're experiencing unforgiveness. We are no longer being gentle. We're impatient. There's no more love. There's no more joy. There's no more peace in our hearts because we've walked away from the Lord and we've lived in the world and according to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and pride of life, we quench the Spirit, we grieve the Spirit of God and we find ourselves in the most miserable place possible as a member of the election who is failing in His purpose. There's no one on this earth more miserable than a believer who is in rebellion against God. And when we find ourselves here, there's only one of two directions we can go. Like Israel could only go one of two directions. We can see the lack of love, the lack of joy, the lack of peace, the lack of long-suffering, the lack of gentleness and goodness and faith and meekness and temperance in our lives. And we can see those and say, aha, these are missing. There's something wrong. And it can draw us back to God. Or we can peek a little bit farther over that fence and we'll start to say, you know, The world says that they can help me with this. The world has the answer. And all of a sudden, when I'm looking for joy and peace and contentment in my life, I start turning the TV on and looking at those commercials that'll tell me that I'll be happy if I'll just get the next big thing. Or if I'll just take one more drink. Or if I'll just find that soulmate. I fall deeper into envy of the world around me And the more miserable I get, and I'll experience the same spiritual famine that the rest of the world is under, the same resentments, same confusion, the same discontentment. And if you're living as a Christian but failing to experience the fruit of the Spirit in your life, if your life is not defined by this list in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, it's likely that it's because somewhere along the line, like Israel, you began to think that the promises of the world are how a person truly becomes happy. You began to desire to be like other nations around you. Give me a king that he may judge me and that he may go out and fight my battles for me. That the psychologists actually have the answer to the world's emotional problems. That politicians actually have the answer to the world's economic problems. That wealth, fame, or beauty is truly the key to happiness in this life. That's when you're looking over the fence and you're looking for the king of the other nations to deliver you. You're looking to be judged by another king. You're looking to have another king going out and fighting your battles. You have separated yourself from the authority of God's word which tells you how you can truly have love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, goodness, faith, patience, 
faith, meekness, temperance. There we go. And you're now listening to another king and how he says you can have these things, just like all the other nations that are around you. These lies have been floating around since the beginning of time, all the way back to Adam and Eve. The serpent, hath God truly said? He goes to Eve and he says, Hey Eve, God says you can't eat of, that, of, of the fruit of the tree, right? She says, No, 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 no. Satan, you've got it wrong. I can't eat of any tree but one. Satan says, No, you can't have that one. Focus on what you can't have. The grass is greener. Eve says, I can have any other tree. Everything but one. Satan says, Yeah, but one. God, God doesn't like you. God is holding something back from you. God has, there's something better out there that God is not giving you. And I can tell you, it's better. If you go that direction, it'll be better for you. You'll be as God's knowing good and evil. God knows that, so he's withholding it from you. The grass is greener, Eve. The grass is greener over there. Yeah, but look at all these blessings. The grass is greener, Eve. You don't even know of all the blessings that the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life have for you. And you get there and you realize what we've said many times, that sin always takes you farther than you wanted to go, keeps you longer than you wanted to stay, and delivers far less than it's ever promised. A life lived in obedience to the Word of God is not a life of restriction. It is a life of true freedom. The genuine and obedient follower of Christ is a life superior to anything that the world can possibly offer. And it is literally worth giving up everything that this world has to offer to obtain. Those who find themselves willing to yield all for the kingdom of God will, without fail, find that they have received incomparably better than what they had to yield to get it. Paul was correct in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, when he said, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. He was right in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, when he said, Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh in us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Three different people in this room today. Perhaps today you realized as you've heard this message, that you have never entered into that election of grace by placing your full faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ to be saved. You've been trying to get to God your own way. It hasn't been working. You have sold yourself to seeking happiness through the lies of the world. It's not working. You're living a life with the discontentment of the, and the, the temporary nature of the world's promises. And on the authority of God's Word, I can tell you that God has something better for you. That if you accept the free gift of salvation offered through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that if you will believe on the name of Christ, you will be saved. The Spirit of God will literally dwell inside you. You will literally get a new heart and you will begin to realize the spiritual joys promised through the fruit of the Spirit. Perhaps today you're a believer and as you've sat in this room and you've heard the preaching and you've read 1 Samuel 8, you've recognized that you've been looking at the world as greener pastures. Metaphorically, you have been desiring a king to rule over you. You have rejected the superior blessings of God's authority. If the Holy Spirit has pinpointed an area of your life where this is the case, where you have been desiring a king, would you repent today? 
Turn your heart back to God so that He can begin to work in you again the spiritual blessings that He's promised toward His elect? Would you realign yourself so that you can begin to fulfill the purpose for which you were redeemed? That the world could look at your life and see something so different from theirs, so superior spiritually, that they would want it as well. There's a third group in here today. Perhaps as a believer, you felt no conviction by this message. You're busy doing the work which God has called you to do. You are seeing the fruit of the Spirit borne out in your life on a daily basis as God has desired. Maybe you're one of those today. And may I just encourage you, if you're one of those, I feel like sometimes we as preachers get so busy talking to those who have problems that we we forget to encourage those that that are, are doing okay in an area. So if you are seeing the fruit of the Spirit borne out, if you are living your elected purpose of being rightly related to God so that you can show others how to be rightly related to God, may I just encourage you to keep it up. Be not weary in well-doing, for Galatians 6.19 tells us, Galatians 6.9, excuse me, be not weary in well-doing, for in due season you shall reap, if you faint not. Keep your eye on the prize, because there's coming a day when you will be rewarded. And may I encourage you finally, that as you do so, don't forget to teach others to do the same. Let's pray together.